Dickens was so clever at ending his parts with some kind of cliffhanger. So rather like soap operas that we watch or a streaming series with lots of different parts. So you want to know what happens next. Welcome to the Wyndham Campbell Prizes podcast. I'm Michael Kelleher. Today I'm talking to Susan Williams, the 2023 recipient of the Wyndham Campbell Prize for Nonfiction about Charles Dickens' 1853 novel Bleak House. Susan is a historian and author based in London. Her latest book is White Malice, The CIA and the Covert Recolonization of Africa. Her other books include Who Killed Hammerskold, The UN, The Cold War, and White Supremacy in Africa, and Color Bar, The Triumph of Suretsi Kama and His Nation which was the basis for the 2016 film, A United Kingdom. All right. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michael. I've been looking forward to it. Me too. I want to get right into our discussion of Charles Dickens because I have, I have just such an awful, complicated, long-standing relationship with him that goes all the way back to before I was in high school. And I just don't think... I have resolved it, and I don't think I'll ever resolve it. I don't know what it is about Bleak House. It's the book that all of my most literary friends recommend to me by Charles Dickens. And I've tried twice to read it all the way through and failed. This time I succeeded. And I don't know, my feeling of Charles Dickens is that, for me, he's incredibly interesting to talk about but he's horrible to read. Like after I finished reading him, I feel like, God, there's, there's so many different ways you could talk about this book and there's so many interesting things happening. But the pleasure of reading for me is so minimal. <laughs> How do you feel about Charles Dickens? Well, I do share some of your negative feelings about David Copperfield and also Great Expectations, in fact. But I think Bleak House is really quite different. I think it is a great book, head and shoulders above all the others in my view. Having said that though, I found there was a very different experience mm. reading it in the last month than there was a, a previous time. I don't like to say how long, a very long time ago when I first read it. I was so excited by what I would call the literary activism mm. of the novel, the spotlight on the suffering of the poor, of social injustice, the need for sanitary reform. I was just fired up by it and inspired by it too. Reading it this time, I still see that and I appreciate it. However, there are aspects of the book that I don't feel very comfortable with. And I've also just read the marvelous biography of Dickens by Claire Tomalin. And mm. the Dickens, the person, the man who emerges from that book is really not much to my taste. I don't like him no. because, because of his behavior towards many people, including his family. You know, so on the one hand, the spotlight he puts on Britain in Bleak House. He rages against the inhumanity, the brutality, the injustice, the tyranny, if you like. But in his own mm. domestic life, he was a bit of a tyrant himself. The fact that after his wife Catherine had had 10 children and additional miscarriages, he decided he'd had enough of her and wanted to remove himself from her because she was growing fat, he said, and languid. 
and that this was also driven by the fact that he'd fallen obsessively in love with a young actress, Ellen Turnan. And by the way, he was 45 and she was 18 at this time. So he wanted to get rid of Catherine. So he installed her in another residence and he insisted on keeping all the 10 children with him. In fact, it appears that there is some evidence to suggest that at that time, he tried to have Catherine certified as mad to be put in a mental hospital. The doctor he asked to do that was a friend of his, but he said no and therefore lost the friendship of Dickens. It's hard to fit that behaviour with his rage against injustice in the novel. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think that's a very relevant question to the present moment too, isn't it? I mean, we've had so many revelations about various writers and artists, mostly men, and behavior ranging from, you know, unethical to monstrous in their personal lives. And I think that's always a really difficult question to navigate, where clearly what is on the paper is significant, and it says significant things, and moving things, and it says things that, that change our lives when we read it, and yet the source is seemingly tainted. And so I guess I would ask you this as a, as a kind of historian, right? Like, can those two things be reconciled? Can one keep two balls up in the air at the same time where you can admire the art and abhor the artist? Or do you have to allow those two things to have some kind of an interplay to better your understanding? That's a very interesting question and very difficult to answer. The fact, for example, that Dickens kept his mistress after getting rid of Catherine, he kept her secretly. And Claire Tomlin wrote a biography of Ellen Turnan as well as of Dickens. And she called it the invisible woman because she wasn't seen, she wasn't acknowledged. But there again, one could argue, what else could Dickens do? I don't know. And I suppose there are ways in which you can reconcile those two different kinds of manifestations. I think it becomes more difficult when there are parts of, in this case, the book that don't seem so pleasant. So for example, for me now, I hadn't seen this before, but now I can see the portrayal of women as very, um, uh, how to, I'm not sure how to put it. I think that yeah. the main function of Mrs. Jellyby is to show what a useless wife is and can be and the damage that she causes. She's this useless housewife because she's so selfish and she spends all her time on causes and um, writing letters and getting her poor daughter to, to um, write them for her, in fact. Interestingly, I think Mrs. Jellyby has become very much associated with philanthropy in terms of readers. I've asked various people generally, have you read Bleak House? And if so, what do you remember? And they nearly always reply, Mrs. Jellyby. Um, I remember her philanthropy, her telescopic philanthropy and her <laughs> cause to support the sending of people from Britain to Borio Bulagar on the bank of the Niger River. And she, she, she later on gives up on Borio Bulagar and turns to women's suffrage. And Dickens, having mocked her, apparently assisting Borio Bulagar, now he mocks the fact that she joins the cause of women's suffrage. But I think one of the reasons why people remember the telescopic philanthropy of Mrs. Jellyby is something associated with people wondering about how philanthropy functions in general. It put me in mind of responses to the Band-Aid song of the 1980s that was put together by Bob Geldof, Do They Know It's Christmas, which raised oh. a lot of money for people suffering right. from the famine in Ethiopia at the time. 
And on the one hand, they raised an awful lot of money and people literally were starving. At the same time, lyrics of the song include, where nothing ever grows, no rain or rivers flow. Do they know it's Christmas at all? And so many people questioned the spirit of this and said it was arrogant, that people believed they knew best and were interfering and it was ignorant. It's something to think about. Mm. It's, it's a difficult question. I was also, I mean, you know, to, to give Dickens a little sympathy in this portrayal, on the one hand, you've got the sort of capitalist marauders and torturers and so forth going into Africa with profit and power in mind. But then you've got the soft hand of that, which is represented by missionaries and in this case, philanthropists, right, who on some level feel like they're doing good, right? They've, they've got this very skewed idea of the state of the people that they think they're helping. They're offering to give them money and educate them in, you know, planting coffee to help out the capitalists and stuff. But I, I do feel like there was some kind of a, at least an implicit critique of the imperialism of the time embedded in that caricature. Yes, I think that there is an implicit criticism and satire of that. But at the same time, he presents the community living in Borio Bulaga on the bank of the Niger in a pretty disrespectful and racist way. He says that Mrs. Jellaby has been disappointed in Borio Bulaga, which turned out a failure in consequence of the king of Borio Bula wanting to sell everybody who survived the climate for rum. Mm. And it's just, I find that's, it, it, it's, it's unacceptable, that, that level of racism. Yeah. So, um, however, yeah, at the yeah. same time, in terms of Dickens' sympathy for the individual, that was very powerful with Dickens. So on the one hand, I've been saying that he was pretty dreadful, but he had such a strong sense of the people who were largely not seen at that time. They weren't heard. He makes them visible in his book. And I think he had a especially strong sense of the poor because of his own experience of life and the fact that his family went into a debtor's prison and then he had to go and work in a boot polish factory. He met the people who he depicts in his novels and many of them really do come alive. And he had a genuine concern for them. He was often visiting orphanages, so-called asylums for fallen women, mental hospitals. In fact, just this morning, I was walking around a site near where I live which had been a huge workhouse where more than 2,000 people had been kept from babies to the elderly. And I was reminded of a story about Dickens that he was called to be a juror at an inquest at the workhouse in the case of a young woman who was a servant and she had given birth to a baby who died. She was sent off to the workhouse and effectively under arrest. And there was this trial to see whether or not she was guilty of killing her child. And Dickens was vigorous in his defense of this young woman because he knew that if she was judged as guilty of killing her baby, she would receive the death penalty. And he fought very hard to save her. And he did. And that, that's the kind of person in many, that he, he was like that too. He was all these things, but he did have a tremendous sense of sympathy and concern and care for the poor. I think that comes across very clearly in his depiction of Joe, the waif. And I think that character is a character that reappears in a lot of his work as well. 
Yes, Joe, I think he's 10 years old, crossing sweeper, a beggar who is trying to get richer people to pay him bits of money if he cleans the crossing that they, they as pedestrians want to go over. And he's living in Tom All Alone's. The, right. Um, and what is Tom All Alone's? That, that, I love that name. And I was fascinated to know more about that part of London. That's around the Chancery Lane area in one of the alleys. And in fact, while reading this book again, I visited many parts of London around there. And you can still see those alleys. And um, of course, at that time, rich and poor were living cheek by jowl. But then later, the poor were moved out. And so those alleyways now are more or less empty. One of the dimensions of Joe that seems to me very important about the novel, and it still fires me up, I mean, it did the last time and still does, is the way in which Dickens uses the infection from Joe to Esther to establish a brotherhood of all people, of all classes. Dickens wrote in his notes in preparation for his writing, Joe, begin the infection from him. And this was used by other writers at the time as well to show the connection between the two nations, between the rich and the poor. It made me think when we were going through the COVID crisis, I thought on several occasions it would be very meaningful if someone were to write a global version of Bleak House to show the connection between all the peoples of the world in relation to COVID. There were so many occasions when leaders of the richer countries of the world would get together and say that no one is safe from this disease unless we are all safe. And so we must share the vaccine equally and democratically. But for the most part, that was just a promise. It was all words. So it's interesting to see again that metaphor, if you like, of infection as being what binds all people together. It's interesting, that idea of infection in the opening section when he's starting to describe the chancery and he describes the fog sort of inundating Chancery Lane and this whole area. Do you want to maybe read that and then we can kind of talk about that? Because I think that's like a really interesting metaphor for this idea of infection. And and also, you know, I think we can really think of, you know, the bureaucracy and, and all of the attendant manifestations of the Chancery Court as a kind of disease as well within this novel. Yes, I think that's very apposite. London, Michaelmas term lately over, and the Lord Chancellor sitting in Lincoln's Inn Hall. Implacable November weather, as much mud in the streets as if the waters had but newly retired from the face of the earth, and it would not be wonderful to meet a megalosaurus, 40 feet long or so, waddling like an elephantine lizard up Holborn Hill, smoke lowering down from chimney pots, making a soft black drizzle with flakes of soot in it, as big as full-grown snowflakes, gone into mourning, one might imagine, for the death of the sun. Dogs, undistinguishable in mire, horses, scarcely better, splashed to their very blinkers, foot passengers, jostling one another's umbrellas, in a general infection of ill temper, and losing their foothold at street corners, where tens of thousands of other foot passengers have been slipping and sliding since the day broke, if the day ever broke, adding new deposits to the crust upon crust of mud, sticking at those points tenaciously to the pavement and accumulating at, at compound interest. Fog everywhere, fog up the river where it flows among green airs and meadows, fog down the river 
where it rolls defiled among the tears of shipping and the waterside pollutions of the great and dirty city. Just one thing to mention about this opening is I realised what an influence Dickens has been on me when I glanced at the beginning of my last book, White Malice, because I saw that very same sort of visual representation of the situation that I was about to describe. Gosh, I, I was so interested to see how influenced I have been by Dickens. <laughs> There's there's the fog as literal fog, but there's also the sort of metaphorical level there. And I can't help thinking if we were talking about white malice, we would be talking about like the fog of war, but also the fog of bureaucracy. I think that's a really fascinating connection. Well, certainly in terms of, of the fog in Bleak House, which is presented right at the opening, it seems to me it's presented both as a reality and as a metaphor, as you suggest. Because on the one side of Lincoln's Inn, at which the Court of Chancery is seated, are the lawyers in business for themselves. And on the other, of Chancery Lane, we see the people who are dependent on the law for their livelihood. Snagsby, the stationer, the copywriter Horden, who dies and who is the secret father of Esther, our heroine. And it just seems like such an unhealthy, non-functioning world which in a way I think Dickens would have seen as a metaphor for Britain more largely. So, uh, you know, an idle aristocracy, a useless parliament, a black shadow of lack of sanitation, lack of sewerage, of poor health hanging over the nation, which he interestingly often compared to France, which had had its revolution in 1789, which in many ways he really admired. What was the Chancery Court. Can you tell us a little bit about that historically? Well, that was the civil, part of the civil justice system. And the case in this novel is the case Jarndyce and Jarndyce that has been going on for generations over a disputed inheritance. And it just goes on and on and on. And it's so useless and it's a joke, except it's not a joke because it has a terrible impact on so many of the people who are affected by it. And just about everybody in this book, in some way, is connected to John Dice and John Dice, both as reality and also as metaphor. That is very powerful. It seemed to me of interest that set against the uselessness and efforts to make more money is Mr. Rouncewell, who is an entrepreneur, if you like, in the business of iron. And he is presented by Dickens as very efficient, concerned, and an individual who participates in his society in a positive way. And Mr. Rouncewell is contrasted by Dickens, firstly, with Celeste Dedlock, who is the idle aristocrat, but also, I think, with the case of Jarndyce and Jarndyce and the Court of Chancery that is at the center of the book. On the one hand, we have idle uselessness. On the other, we have energy and drive and a commitment to society at large. And a little detail was very interesting to me was that Mr. Rouncewell's son wants to marry the maid of Lady Dedlock. And these two young people are in love. And Lady Dedlock manages to ensure that her maid is able to marry the son of Mr. Rouncewell. But Mr. Rouncewell, the elder, the father of the son who wants to marry this maid, he sends her off to Germany to get an education. 
And so the contrast between this young woman being sent off to get an education, to be educated with just being a maid and serving the rich, is, is I found very powerful. Yeah, I thought the desire to protect her was fascinating on the part of Lady Dedlock. Yes, I have the sense of almost a kind of love for Lady Dedlock from Dickens in the novel. He does have so much sympathy for her and you feel it. And then when she dies, it just seems so, it's, it's, it's heartache. In fact, the more we talk about Lady Dedlock, the, the, the more I like and appreciate her and see her as a really important character in this book. It was lovely that she did that, but a difficult moment. Maybe what is so fascinating about Lady Dedlock is, unlike many of the other main characters, her motivations aren't always clear. From what I could garner from the text, the only reason she has for protecting this maid is because she's so beautiful, perhaps. Maybe there's some other deeper motivation there. But that seemed to me like a strange pretext for wanting to protect somebody who's not of your class or of your rank just to because you admire their beauty. Yes. So I, I quite agree with you. And I had a sense that it was because she was trying to do the right thing. And there's a bit towards the end of the novel where Esther says... It doesn't matter if you're not rich in the bank. The important thing is to do good. That's what is rich. And she feels that her husband, the doctor, they are rich because they are trying to do good. And there we see in Lady Dedlock, she's doing good. She doesn't have to do that. So I guess that comes from Dickens. Yeah. Um, jumping back, you know, one of the things that I love about Dickens in all of his books is his naming of characters. Deadlock, of course, is like the perfect metaphor for what's happening in Chancery Court. But also the name of yep. the, the case, Jarndyce and Jarndyce, right? It sounds quite a bit like jaundice. Yeah, that's uh, true. Which is itself an infection. Yeah. Um, you know, that is being carried from character to character. And what is the source of that? And it's money, right? Money seems yeah. ultimately to be the real disease here. And that's what, in the saddest case, what you see, which what happens to Richard is he's completely infected by this disease and it destroys his life. Yes, I hadn't actually thought about John Dice and John Dice sounding like jaundice and jaundice, but absolutely right. And John Dice himself, Esther's guardian, calls it the family curse. And as with the fog, the disputed case just hangs over everything. I think what I find interesting when I read Dickens, I really struggle to find that moment in the book where I'm just sort of taken in and swept along with the narrative. I get swept along for 20 pages or 50 pages here and there, but then there's two or 300, 400 pages of, of just, you know, trying to maintain interest. But I think one of the things that does maintain my interest throughout the reading of the book is his, his novels are like these cabinets of curiosities in some sense. I, I think they're so representative of all the prejudices and all the fashions and all the fads and all the quirks of life in 19th century London. And so you have all these weird, I mean, I love the fact that he has a plot point that revolves around spontaneous combustion, which was such a 19th century non-phenomenon that people wrote, you know, essays and essays on as if it actually existed. Yeah. Well, as a historian, I find it very interesting that I see history in this fiction because it's so carefully rooted. And as I say, I've been walking around London visiting different places that are mentioned in the book. And there they are. And there's also people's beliefs and attitudes and fashions and fads. And they're all so firmly there. I think also, I myself like reading his narrative. And I think it's because I do enjoy his narrative drive. 
And I can see why Bleak House was published in 20 monthly parts between 1852 and 1853. And I gather that when people had read one part, they were just desperate to read the next one because Dickens was so clever at ending his parts with some kind of cliffhanger and people wanting to know what happened next. And I think that engaged people in both an intellectual way in terms of the ideas he was presenting and the people he was presenting, but also in a manner of entertainment, if you like. So rather like soap operas that we watch or a streaming series with lots of different parts. You want to know what happens next. Well, I will just say, Susan, that I tried to make myself into a 19th century reader this time around, <laughs> and I read it like 20 pages a day, and it just still didn't happen for me, but that's okay. It did give me a lot to, to think about and talk about. I love what you were talking about, how you can wander around London and you can see these places. They're still there. Lincoln's in, you know. But I think also one of the things that struck me as really contemporary about this novel, he creates the world and the whole sort of like economy and culture that's built around the Chancery Court. And so you're not just in the courtroom. You're seeing, you know, the judges and you're seeing yeah. the pages and you're seeing the aides and you're seeing the clerks. Yeah. And you're seeing the lawyers and then you're seeing the plaintiffs and the people who are suffering. And then you're seeing the people who are making a living by selling trinkets from the court or parchments or you're seeing the people who are the copy editors and the scriveners, and there's this whole thing around it. And all of that is built up to keep the cases going forever and ever and ever yeah. until, yeah. as happens in the novel, all the money is sucked out of the inheritance and into the hands yeah. of the people who were involved in this economy. And I couldn't help thinking to myself, well, the technology has changed, but has anything else? That's really uh, a thought. And as you say, that's the very powerful presentation. I'm thinking also of the world around the court and that participates in it. I'm thinking of Miss Flight, the elderly lady who had been involved mm. in a different case, which was a disaster. But she's watching Jarndyce and Jarndyce and she has some birds captured. And she says that mm. when the case comes to an end, she'll let them free. And don't the birds all have crazy names too, like hope, joy and youth? Waste, ruin, despair, madness, and death. <laughs> yeah. So it's sort of like the, the map of the plot of the book, right? Yeah. And I mean, I find that I respond to all this as I read without knowing I'm responding to it, if you see what I mean. And there is a sense of freedom when the case finally comes to an end because it's all used up. There's nothing for Carstone, who had been expecting the inheritance to transform his life. It's all useless mm -hmm. and hopeless. But there is still a sense of freedom and, um, and it's over. There is also, despite that stultifying feeling, Jarndyce and Jarndyce, there are elements in the novel, I think, of a sense of future. So, for example, I've mentioned Mr. Ramswell. He sort of, as an entrepreneur, he reminds me of maybe, you know, IT entrepreneurs in the world today moving into some new direction, new things becoming possible. And then that linked up also with the start of the railways and how that transformed the world that Esther inhabits. The railways are, are already in existence during the time of the novel, right? They're, or they're just coming yeah. to existence? Yeah, but it, it's happening very fast. The building of the railways, the stations and so on. It must have been extraordinary to have lived through that. So what do we take from reading Charles Dickens in the 21st century? Well, I think there's many resonances for people globally. The injustice of the inequalities 
between rich and poor in the UK today, there is a very strong sense that, um, I mean, the economy is not booming as it was in the mid 19th century, but it still seems to be the case that the rich are consolidating their wealth and getting richer and richer. And meanwhile, so many people are becoming poorer and poorer. They can't feed their families. There's such a dependence now on food banks, families of nurses, of teachers, elderly people, people with small babies. Somebody said that Britain has always really liked its McDonald's outlets. There are far more food banks than McDonald's outlets. That seems like a silly thing to say, but I think it just does describe something. And in terms of Dickens's caricatures of people, politicians and so on, if one thinks about the very short prime ministership of Liz Truss and what she was doing in terms of trying to reduce the taxes of the rich and pull back on the welfare and the rights of everybody else, it seems to me to fit very well in the pages of Bleak House. It is a bleak house that we live in. Mm. But with Dickens as literary activist, he wanted to put a spotlight on this in order to change things so people would do something about it, make it better. It, I mean, there's hope, right? There's Esters in the world. There's Jarndyces in the world who, who keep their nose out of the filth, right? We hope. Yeah, that little section that I referred to earlier where Esther says we, she and her husband, Dr. Woodcourt, she says, we are not rich in the bank, but we have always prospered and we have quite enough. I never walk out with my husband, but I hear the people bless him. I never go into a house of any degree, but I hear his praises or see them in grateful eyes. I never lie down at night, but I know that in the course of that day, he has alleviated pain and soothes some fellow creature in the time of need. I know that from the beds of those who are past recovery, thanks have often, often gone up in the last hour for his patient ministration. Is not this to be rich? And I do think that does chime also um, with our recent experience of COVID. You know, mm -hmm. those people who cared for the sick and the suffering at that time. And that did seem a moment when perhaps we were going to realize things had to be different. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please be sure to rate, subscribe, and review us on your favorite podcast platform and to follow the prizes on social media. 